And uh, if you will, please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, which is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Again, our scripture reading is Romans 3, 21 to 26. And then our sermon passage is 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 14. First, Romans 3, 21 to 26. But even before that, before I begin reading God's Word, I want to remind you of what you're about to read, what you're about to hear. This is the Lord. He's speaking to you. His Word is living and active. It is not dead. We want to hear God's voice, and we hear it because He speaks to us in and through His Word. It is the very Word of God, infallible, inspired, and errant, and written down and preserved for you. And so it would be good, it would be well, it would be wise for you to give your full attention to God's Word as it is now to be read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 21 beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make an atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahathalite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are grateful to you for your word. Your word is truth. We feast upon your word. It is nourishment to our souls. It is bread for our souls. And so we ask, gracious God, by your spirit, that you would teach us from your word today. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless the one who preaches and that you would bless the ones who hear. That you would give us all ears to hear your word. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, those of you who have been with us for a while, you can detect an evident shift from last week's passage in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20 to our passage today. Up to this point in uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, we have taken a mostly chronological history of Israel during the time of Saul and David. But the opening opening verse in chapter 21 is very vague with regard to when the events that follow actually took place. The shift in the narrative has led some scholars to think that chapters 21 to 24 are just an appendix, that they were perhaps added later on by some other scribe. But when you take these chapters, chapters 21 to 24, along with 1 Kings 1 and 2, they form, to take them together, they form almost an epilogue to 1 and 2 Samuel. And so as Dale Davis puts it in his commentary on this book, I hold that these chapters are not an appendix or an intrusion, but the intended wrap-up for all of 1 and 2 Samuel. And in the first part of chapter 21, we read a gruesome account of sins committed in the past that brought consequence upon the people of Israel, specifically the land that they inhabited. Our passage harkens back to Joshua chapter 9 which contains the account of the Gibeonites who deceived Joshua and the Israelites into making a covenant with them so that Israel would not kill them. Now you may remember from your own Bible reading or perhaps our our sermon series through the book of Joshua eight or nine years ago that their deception was carried out by making themselves to appear to be from a distant land when in fact they were very close neighbors of, of where the Israelites were. The Gibeonites knew that Israel had come into Canaan and they were on a mission to kill all of the inhabitants of the land. They had heard about the destruction of Jericho. They knew that no quarter would be given to any people who were already in the land. And so they decided rather than fight Israel, they would try to make a treaty with them. But the only way to do so was to make Joshua and the Israelites believe that they were not inhabitants of Canaan. 
And so they put on different types of dress. They had crumbly bread that was falling apart that gave evidence that they had traveled from a great distance away to, to parley with the Israelites. And the ruse worked. Joshua and his men were duped. And Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites that Joshua would not break, even after they found out who their new allies really were. The punishment that they received was not death, because they could not kill them. They had sworn to protect them, to spare them. The punishment they received was to be made indentured servants. And so that's what they were. As we work our way through the sermon today, I would ask you to consider uh, this thought. David made atonement for the sins of Saul against the Gibeonites. Jesus Christ made atonement for our sins against him. Let me say that again. David made atonement for the sins of Saul against the Gibeonites. Jesus Christ made atonement for our sins against him. The sermon today is a four-parter. It was a shock to us all, I know. The first part of the sermon is the covenant brings death. The second, the covenant brings life. The third, the covenant brings sorrow. And the fourth, the covenant brings joy. Perhaps you've picked up on a pattern. But I'll say it again, just in case you didn't. The covenant brings death. That's the first part of the sermon. The second, the covenant brings life. The third, the covenant brings sorrow. And the fourth and final point of the sermon, the covenant brings joy. So let's consider the first point of the sermon, the covenant brings death. We don't know with any certainty when the events of uh, verses 1 to 14 took place. But we do know that it was after David took Mephibosheth into his home in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Other than that, there is no chronological marker by which we can go to know when this happened. Verse 1 simply says that there was a famine in the land for three years in the, in the day of David. And because of how prolonged this famine was, David began to suspect that there was some form of punishment from God taking place. And so he sought the face of Yahweh, and God told him there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. God did not allow Israel to continue being punished for the sins of Saul and not let Israel know why they were being punished. He revealed to David in a special way, special revelation. He told David exactly what the issue was. And David wasted no time in calling the Gibeonites to come and to speak to him. Verse 2 has a brief explanatory note in case anyone had forgotten their history, noting the fact that the Gibeonites weren't part of Israel but were a remnant of the Amorites, which was a generic term for the inhabitants of, the Can of Canaan, also known as the Canaanites. And the people of Israel had sworn to spare the Gibeonites in Joshua's day, but Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Thus he broke the long-standing covenant between his people, and the Gibeonites. And so in verse 3, David gets to the heart of the matter. What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of Yahweh? Now Saul's desire to destroy the Gibeonites and his relative success at doing it was a great crime against them. It was a terrible atrocity. These would be considered war crimes in our day. But it also disgraced the name of the Lord. 
Joshua and the other leaders of Israel had sworn to the Gibeonites by the name Yahweh that they would spare them. But Saul thought so little of God's covenant name and of his predecessor's covenant oath that he trampled upon them. Now, the Gibeonites make it very clear in verse 4 that they are not interested in money. They're not trying to receive a huge payout because of the great troubles that came upon them. They're not trying to get rich off of the deaths of their people. They know that they don't have the power to carry out executions as punishment for Saul's crimes. But they understand the covenant well, perhaps better than Saul did. They They know that Saul's sins, his crimes, require death as a punishment. And so they tell David in verses 5 and 6, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before Yahweh at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Yahweh. And David agreed. What they requested of him was proper. When Saul committed these atrocities against the Gibeonites, he was acting on behalf of the nation as their king. This was a national crime that must be dealt with even though Saul was now dead. That brings us to the second part of the sermon. The covenant brings life. Saul's sins had brought covenant curses upon Israel. Sins against our neighbors are also sins against the Lord. Our sins, even as individuals, not even on a national scale, our sins have a cosmic scale to them. And that's because all sins are heinous in God's sight because He is perfectly holy. And so all sins, each and every single sin, is deserving of death. Now murdering people with whom you had made a covenant in the Lord's name was especially heinous. And this was why God was punishing Israel even so long after that event had happened. As king, Saul's sins were in a sense imputed to David. Saul was dead and David was left to deal with the consequences. Saul was the representative of Israel while he was king and now David was Israel's representative. Because of the covenant that had been made hundreds of years in the past, through death, David could bring life. But he could only do so by atoning for Saul's sins against the Gibeonites. Atonement could only be made by propitiating, satisfying God's wrath. God's wrath against Israel in general could be propitiated by the death of a few. In this case, seven of the sons or grandsons of Saul. Now this isn't about vengeance for the Gibeonites. They hadn't even approached David about it. David discovered this great crime against the Gibeonites because he inquired of the Lord what was going on. Why was there a famine? It's the Lord who brought this crime, this sin against the Gibeonites to David's attention. The Gibeonites don't want vengeance. But a debt was owed to them for the loss of their sons and daughters. That debt must be repaid by the loss of some of Saul's sons. Now, the Gibeonites' ancestral home was near Saul's home in the land allotted to the tribe of Benjamin, so they would have quite easily become the target of his malice. Perhaps he wanted their lands. And so the Gibeonites want these seven sons of Saul to be hung at Gibeah of Saul. Because of a covenant that David and Jonathan had made with each other, David had decided to take in Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Now, you'll remember that Mephibosheth had been crippled when he was five years old, and his nurse had had found out about Saul's and Jonathan's death. She stood up, 
Apparently she dropped Mephibosheth. She broke his legs in some way so that he could barely walk for the rest of his life. And so since their death, since David took them in, Mephibosheth had been living at David's house and dining at his table for some time. But because of this covenant that David had made with Jonathan, Mephibosheth was not under consideration when David decided to fulfill the Gibeonites' request. The covenant Joshua had made with the Gibeonites brought death to seven of Saul's sons, but the covenant that David had made with Jonathan brought life to Mephibosheth. That brings us to point number three. The covenant brings sorrow. Verse 8 says that David took two took the two sons of Rizpah, whom she bore to Saul, whose names were Armani and Mephibosheth, not to be confused with Jonathan's son of the same name, and the five sons of Merab, Saul's daughter, who she bore to Adriel. These sons and grandsons of Saul, some of whom, according to one commentator, were likely still minor children, were taken to be hung. Such is the curse of breaking the covenant. Numbers chapter 35 verse 33 says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. The shedding of blood requires shedding of blood to atone for it. As we said, the Gibeonites had no power to execute anyone for the crimes committed against them, especially for crimes committed by King Saul. Saul's crimes, his sins, had gone without consequence. And again, remember that it wasn't the Gibeonites who brought Saul's sins to David's attention. It was the Lord who did so. He remembered the blood that Saul had shed in violation of the covenant that was made in his name. As Dale Davis points out, Saul did not murder the Gibeonites as a private person. He was the king of Israel, and as we pointed out before, because of that, he was representing all of Israel. He was acting in a federal or representative capacity when he did this, when he murdered those people. And so because of this, Saul's children and grandchildren would have to represent Saul in suffering the consequences for Saul's sins. Verse 9 says that the Gibeonites hanged them on the mountain before Yahweh, and they all perished together. Now this took place at the beginning of the time of the barley harvest, which would have been in March or April. It wasn't that they were harvesting anything since the famine was ongoing, but that this was the normal, the usual time for the harvest. Now as you can imagine, the taking of these seven sons or grandsons of Saul... They would have pierced through the very souls of the mothers of these sons. Rizpah, the mother of two of Saul's sons, took up vigil near the bodies of these seven sons of Saul. Two of them were her actual sons. The other five would have been, in a strange way, her grandsons, though through a different wife of Saul's, such as the strangeness of polygamy. I don't recommend it. It's not helpful. But in this way, she grieved her loss and she paid honor to the house of Saul. And in this way, she was a kind of proto-Mary, a type of Mary, if you will. Mary kept vigil at the foot of the cross on which her son was hanged. She honored his body by going to his tomb on the third day after his death to anoint him with spices and oil. The wages of sin is death, and one of the consequences of sin is the grief we experience because of the death of those we love. Rizpah knew deep grief. 
as she kept solitary vigil at the feet of her sons. She did not leave them until their bodies were eventually taken down. Now when Adam sinned in the garden, he brought death into the world. Spiritual death first and then physical death. Death is the cost of sin. And because Adam represented all of humankind in the garden, we all suffer the consequence of death. Had Adam not sinned in the garden, we all would have reaped the benefits and blessings of his obedience. But because he sinned and fell, we sinned and fell with him. We all reap the penalty for his sin. What's more, we in a sense inherited his sinfulness. We sin too each and every day. So not only do we suffer the consequences of Adam's sin, we suffer the consequences of our own sin. And some of us know the sting of those consequences all too closely, all too intimately. God made a covenant with Adam in the garden that held out the promise of life to Adam and Eve if, and all of their descendants if they obeyed God, but that held out the penalty of death if they disobeyed. And we all know it, they disobeyed. We can all attest that we experience the sorrow of covenantal curses every day. And like Rizpah, we experience perpetual sorrow and grief because of the consequences of our own sin and the sin of others. We all still live under a curse. A common curse. That brings us to the final, the fourth and the final part of the sermon today. The covenant brings joy. When David heard about what Rizpah had done, verse 12 says that he went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 31, after the Philistines had defeated Saul's army, they found the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and some of the other sons of Saul on Mount Gilboa. They chopped off Saul's head, they took the bodies, they hung them on the wall of the city of Bethshan. And when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard about it, they conducted a courageous nighttime raid to steal the bodies. And they took them back to Jabesh-Gilead and they burned, buried them rather under the tamarisk tree there. You see, Saul, Saul had shown great kindness to them and they wanted to repay him. Well, though Saul had tried to kill David on many different occasions, David never sought to reciprocate or retaliate. On many occasions when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, and his men begged him to take Saul out, David would say, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. So when David heard about Rizpah and the way that she mourned the deaths of, of the sons of Saul, of how she honored him with her constant vigil, he too desired to honor Saul. He wanted to honor Jonathan, so he brought their remains back to their home. On the way, they gathered the bones of the men who were hanged by the Gibeonites, and they took them to the land of Benjamin, to the tomb of Saul's father Kish, and they buried them there. And after that, verse 14 says, God responded to the plea for the land, meaning that the curse of the famine was ended. The famine was over. Now probably this would take some time. There's a cycle to, to harvests. But it's hard for us to imagine because we're so un-agrarian in our lives today, it's hard for us to imagine the joy that came across the land of Israel when the people realized that this famine had ended, that the harvest would be plentiful, that they would not starve to death. 
God's penalty for Saul's sin had been lifted. His wrath was satisfied. And it was satisfied because David had asked the simple but profound question, how shall I make atonement? Now, if we humans are not deluding ourselves, if we're not numbing ourselves to the condition of the world, that question ought naturally to arise in our own minds. When God reveals to you your sin in much the same fashion as he revealed Saul's sin to David by revealing it to you, by showing it to you, your first question ought to be, how shall I make atonement? How can I make it right? That's a good question. That's the right question. The problem for you and me is that we can't make atonement for our own sins. Our sins are too great. Our sinfulness affects every part of us. So our best attempts at atoning for our sins would still fall far short. The covenant brings death and the covenant brings sorrow. But there's good news. The covenant also brings life. The covenant also brings joy. How? Because God, in a sense, asked that same simple but profound question before he created the world. God knew that Adam and Eve would sin and that all mankind would fall because he knows all things. His knowledge isn't limited by time or distance like ours is. And he asked, when he knew that they would sin, he asked, how shall I make atonement? And the answer that he gave to himself and to us was that in the fullness of time, the eternal son of God would humble himself by adding to his divine nature a human nature, taking on a human body and soul. That he would be born of the Virgin Mary, that he would live a perfect life for us and die a perfect death for us, paying the penalty for all of our sins. That he would give us the great treasure of his righteousness to be counted as our very own. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The wages of sin is death, but if you believe in God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ, you will not bear the penalty of death for your sins. But even so, God remains righteous and just. How? Well, Paul answers that question in verses 24 and 25 and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sin. The wages of sin is death. And God, the son made atonement for our sins by dying in our place on the cross. He stood in our place. He represented us on the cross. He took on our sins and endured the wrath of his father because of our sins. And in doing so, he propitiated, he satisfied the righteous justice of the father for us. God does not simply forgive us our sins by forgetting our sins. That would not be just. Justice requires that a penalty be paid. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, God's eternally begotten son, you don't have to pay the price for your sins. It's already been paid by Jesus. And so because of this, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As Paul says in verse 26 of Romans 3. And so when you reach the end of yourself, when you realize that your own sinfulness and depravity is so great... And you ask yourself, how shall I make atonement for my sins? The Lord supplies the answer. You can't, but I already have. 
You can't. But Jesus Christ has atoned for your sins. So that you don't have to. And that, brothers and sisters, is the great joy of the covenant. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are thankful for the covenant that you made. The covenant you made with your people that we cannot fulfill that you have fulfilled for us. We are thankful that though we fail each and every time, that Jesus Christ has stood in our place, that he represented us throughout his life and in his death on the cross. And even in his resurrection and ascension, he represents us. We are grateful that he has borne the awful wrath, paying the terrible, terrible penalty for my sins, for our sins. The Lord, teach us to be grateful. Help us never to forget the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, the grace and mercy of the Lord. We pray, O Lord, again, that you would help us to hate our sins, that we would recognize their true awfulness and ugliness. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to walk in newness of life. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen.